Well, our sermon passage this morning is Genesis chapter 17. Beginning at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, or the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I'll make him into a great nation. But I'll establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he'd finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house and bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. 
And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. The hallmark of any good story or movie is tension. So the good stories, the good authors know how to create suspense, tension, tension that that puts the good things that you as the reader or the watcher in jeopardy. And this usually happens when our main characters act foolishly. So think of the kids in Jurassic Park. I know that's where your mind was going, but they're fleeing the velociraptors and they go into the kitchen. Why would you go into the kitchen? Or like when Nemo swims off the drop-off and goes and touches the boat. Or when Julia Roberts goes back to Notting Hill one last time to see Hugh Grant and give love a chance. Just me on that last one. I don't like these scenes because they make me nervous. The, the tension in them is palpable. But this is true of all of our favorite books, all of our favorite movies. It's also true in the Bible. So our starting point this morning is that Genesis 16, the chapter we read last week, it created a certain tension in the story, in the text. So if you remember back in chapter 15, the Lord made a commitment to Abraham, or Abram, a, a covenant What we learn there is that God has a program to bless the people of the world. And out of all the world, he's chosen one man, one family through which that blessing will come. So through Abram, he's going to grow a family, a people that will fill the earth. The only problem is that Abram's wife, Sarai, is elderly and barren. So what we see is that in chapter 16, that one chosen family gets impatient. They see no way this promise can actually come to pass with the way that things are. So as Mike so so brilliantly unfolded for us last week, Abram and his wife, Sarah, Sarah, they take matters into their own hands. And so when Abram is 86 years old, he has a son, Ishmael, but it's with Sarah's uh, servant, Hagar. And here is your tension. The recipients of the promise have not been content to wait on the Lord to fulfill the promise. They've played God. They've sinned. So the question becomes, what effect has their sin had on God's commitment to the promise? Have their actions nullified the covenant? God had promised to bless the entire world through them, but now is the promise of that blessing, is it in jeopardy? You know, the tension is heightened by the fact that after this debacle, Abram doesn't hear from the Lord again for a really long time. By the time we get one line further down in the story, 13 years have gone by. Look at chapter 17, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old. 13 years is a long time to go without hearing from someone, especially that you know when you know that you've done wrong to that person. 
At the end of Genesis 16, the tension is real. Abram had clearly received the promise, but he had also clearly messed things up. And now, silence. So think of that period between chapter 16 and 17. Time is quickly, mercilessly plodding ahead. The seconds on their biological clock seem to be doing double time. The promise just lays out there, but the impossibility of its fulfillment seems to get clearer every day. Until one day, after all this time, the Lord shows up again. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. All right, God is back, and he's speaking again. He's, he shows up, and he promptly makes himself his intentions known. He says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. This sounds a bit terrifying to you, probably getting the right vibe. In fact, verse 3 tells us straight up that when the Lord showed up and spoke, Abram fell on his face. The Lord is here, and he is ready to speak. But what would he say? In light of the debacle that was chapter 16, what would he say? Has he come? Has he showed up to, to announce that he's shutting the program down? That the reality of sin and curse are just too much? They've, they've overtaken the plan of blessing? What does he say? Look there in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face. The Lord has come to speak, but he has not come to shut down the program. No, he's come to double down on it. The Lord has shown up against the, the dark backdrop of his chosen people's great failure to communicate that his plans will never fail. What's the main point of Genesis 17? I think the main point is something like the Lord is serious. His election of Abram in chapter 12, it was not on a whim. His covenant in chapter 15 was not some flighty emotional episode. No, Genesis 17 comes in and unfolds for us the very nature of the covenant. That is, when the Lord God Almighty commits himself to something, no amount of human sin or incompetence or disobedience or failure or manipulation will thwart it. The Lord God puts his very word on the commitment to bring blessing to the whole world through this one flawed man named Abram. And the point is, is that he's serious. He's, he's appeared now, after this great failure, to give this covenant a new beginning. You know, I'm guessing that some of us need to believe this afresh today. You know, we look around, maybe at the state of our world, maybe the state of our own hearts, and we wonder, I mean, is this place, is it too far gone? Has the Lord backed away? Has he reached the end of his mercy? Was God really serious in this plan of blessing? I think Genesis 17 is here to answer that question. Was God serious about his covenant? Is he seriously, unilaterally committed to bringing about blessing to the world through this sinful man named Abram? He is. Really is. And to prove this, in chapter 17, God himself 
shows up to communicate. This passage is all about the Lord speaking. We see this in the repetition. And God said, and God said, and God said, three times over. And in speaking, the Lord is communicating that the program of his blessing is on. He wants to clarify and renew some things about his commitment. And he does this clarifying by addressing each of the players and their roles in the covenant. Verse 3, God said, and then he addresses his own role. Verse 9, God said, he addresses Abram's role. Verse 15, God said, he addresses Sarai's role. And we'll just take these in turn. The first thing we see clarified or renewed, number one, is God's role. And what is his role? I think it's something like everlasting faithfulness. That's his role. So verses 3 through 8, they highlight the Lord's self-appointed responsibility. And what is it? His role is faithfulness in carrying out the covenant. And God said to him, verse 4 says, Behold, my covenant is with you. Now notice, this part isn't new, right? God has already made a covenant with Abram in chapter 15. So what's going on in this chapter? What are we, why are we covering this again? Well, has anybody watched the, the movie The Wizard of Oz in a while? So this movie came out in 1939. Now, it wasn't the first movie ever released. There were tons of movies before it, but it was one of the first of its kind. Does anybody remember why? Color. Good job. You do know why. So if you watch it, it'll tell you right there on the screen in the opening shots. It says something like, photographed in technicolor. If you look up movie posters from the day, it says something like, a technicolor triumph. So the producers of the movie use this new color technology to create a whole new dimension to the movie-watching experience. It was still just a movie, but it was brighter. It was more full. I think Genesis 17 is something like that to the covenant. It's still the covenant, but now it's coming to us in technicolor, fuller, with more detail. And one of the most important arresting details of the covenant that we now see has to do with the duration of God's commitment to the covenant. And what is the duration? When does it expire? It doesn't. It's everlasting. Look at verse 7. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and, your me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Verse 8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. This is the technicolor brilliance of the covenant. God is committed to being everlastingly faithful to it. And this answers the prior tension, doesn't it? So the question raised in our minds, or it should have been raised in our minds as we're paying close attention to the reading of the text, is something to the effect of, is there a time limit on God's faithfulness? Is there a chance that, he, that these things won't actually come about? Will, will the sand of the hourglass run out before he's had a chance to make good on his blessing to all the world through Abram? And the answer is an emphatic no. The covenant, he says, is everlasting. Its blessings will have no end because God is committed to being eternally faithful to it. And to what is he everlastingly committed? What are the contents of the covenant? What makes this covenant so good? 
What will the blessings look like? Notice two things in this chapter that we've seen already in the contents of the covenant. Two things, a people and a place. So if you're wondering what is the content of God's covenant as we work through it in Scripture, maybe you can remember those two Ps, a people and a place. So notice the first thing. God is going to have a people. Look at verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So here we have more technicolor bring out the brilliance of the covenant. And this time, the coloring comes when the Lord renames Abram in verse 5. Look there. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. All right, so renaming is not an uncommon thing in the Bible. So often the Lord gives people a new name. It's a way to communicate the plans that he intends to accomplish through that person. And here he takes Abram, uh, a name that meant exalted father, and he renames him Abraham. That is the father of a multitude. Have you ever known somebody whose name was just a little bit unfortunate? Like is just a total bummer they were named that because what they are doesn't exactly match up with the name they were given. Maybe like someone named Grace who's a bit judgy or someone like Hope who's rather pessimistic. This is why we just went for names that sounded cool to us just to cut out the potential for any irony. Think about this. God takes a childless 99-year-old man and he essentially puts on him the name This is the father of a whole lot of people. I mean, it seems rather cruel. It would be, except that it's true. The Lord really is everlastingly committed to making a people for himself from the body of this aging, barren man. He is now Av-Raham, the father of a multitude. This is what the Lord will do. Think about this. From this time on until the promise is fulfilled, every time he hears this new name, he'll probably feel this tension, right? So on the one hand, there's this potential, this continual pointing out that what he's named is not yet true of him. But on the other hand, he'd hear this new name, Abraham. And he'd hear the father of many people. And he'd think, by faith, That is me. By God's grace, that is me. I believe that. The Lord would bring many children of faith out of this one man of faith. This is what the Lord's everlasting commitment is to, was to, and it still is. You know, not to to skip all the grunt work, but we'd be remiss not to see that this is exactly what the Lord has done in Christ It's exactly what the Lord is doing right now through his spirit. So Genesis 12 through 17, they focused our attention, our hope of worldwide blessing down to one family. And now we're on the lookout for a descendant, this one to come from this family, a a descendant through whom the whole world will be blessed. And this is exactly why the gospel of Matthew opens his account of Jesus by introducing Jesus as the son of Abraham. 
Jesus is the son and the seed of Abraham, the one who lived by perfect faith, perfect obedience to the Father, an obedience which led him directly to the cross. And on the cross, he bore the curse for sin that we might enjoy what? Blessing, the blessing of the covenant. And in this way, Abraham is now the father of an everlasting multitude. In Christ, the Lord is creating for himself a people of faith out of the man of faith. This is what Paul, I think, is explaining in Galatians chapter 3. Just listen to a couple of verses there. Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you want to get in on the everlasting blessing of God? The Bible says that it's here for you, but you've got to come by faith. You've got to believe God, and you've got to come by faith in Christ. You've got to believe that Christ's work was for you. It's in this way the Lord is making an everlasting covenant to be God to Abraham and to his offspring. In the gospel, God has given us himself so that in Christ we could be a people to him. That's the first element of this covenant to which the Lord is everlastingly faithful. He will have a people. There's a second element, and that is a place God's people are going to have a place. We've covered this uh, before, so just for the sake of time, we'll mention it briefly. You know, we've seen already in the story, God holds these two elements together in his covenant. The blessing consists of a people and a place. He elects, he calls out and makes people his own, but he doesn't leave them homeless. He gives them a home, a secure place. In the narrative of Genesis, this place is called Canaan. That's what it says there in verse 8. It's a place kept safe and secure for his people. But as we read, we realize that this physical place, Canaan, at least as it stands, is not sufficient. It's neither 100% secure nor eternal. So what we see is that in the broader narrative of the whole Bible, this everlasting Canaan is actually the whole world, the earth itself, rid of evil, renewed, refurbished, a place kept safe and secure for his people, a place which Jesus says he goes to prepare, and he'll bring it to us very soon. This big picture, this is what the Lord is committed to in his covenant with Abraham. He will be everlastingly faithful to his people and his place. This is what God is doing. And praise God, no amount of human sin or error or manipulation can derail his faithfulness. You know, I just, I would just say, you know, there's so much going on right now about which we're uncertain. There's so much that's got us upset and confused and worked up and grieved and angry. And if I'm being honest, it's difficult because, because pastorally, I just don't have all the answers. So we're doing some things that we think might help, sermon series, Q&As. But I'll just tell you, our responses to current events will, by some weight and measure, in some eyes, be lacking. So I'll just go ahead and apologize ahead of time for our 
the insufficiency of some of our responses even tonight. Not every itch will be scratched. Some tensions will remain. But let me encourage you. This, the message here in Genesis 17, the message that's percolating now all throughout the Bible, this is what we know the Lord is doing. Here there is no insufficiency of answers. This is the program, and this is what we cannot, as pastors or as a church, get wrong. Because what the Lord is doing is that he's looking out at our biggest problem. The problem that humanity has refused to honor him as God, to tremble at his holiness, to desire his beauty, to treasure his loveliness, to acknowledge his benevolence, to fear him, to love him. In short, God's looking out at our sin and all the immense ramifications of it. Our guilt, our shame, our legitimate condemnation, our separation from one another, our division, our language barriers, our hatred, our partiality, our utter inability to reconcile to either him or one another on our own. He's looking at this, our, our biggest problem, and he's saying, I'll do it. I'll be everlastingly committed to unifying to myself a people who are, who are now hopelessly scattered and confused and sinful. And I'll do this by uniting them together in my one righteous son by faith. That's the program. That's what we know. So we treasure Christ by faith. And when we do, we're united to God. And one day, one day the truth is that we'll wake up and we'll find ourselves in God's secure place. And when we look around, we see, we'll see that we're, we're surrounded by people of every color and nation and language and tribe with nothing on our lips except the new song of the lamb that was slain. And here's what that means. It means that every single person there, when you wake up in that new secure promised land, every single person you see there will be a person with whom, while on earth, you had disagreements in matters of opinion and conviction. But no one there will be a person with whom you disagreed when it came to that which you treasured above all things while on earth. You all, all have in common the fact that you treasured the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous son of Abraham, the son of God. So I just encourage you, look into cultural issues. Engage with them for righteousness' sake, for the good of others. But don't do any of it if you're not treasuring Christ above all of it. If we have disagreements here and now, we've got to be sure that they are issues that are leading us to treasure Jesus more, to love people more. If not, we are in desperate danger of winning arguments and shrinking our souls. This is the program. He's doing it. This does not mean that Obedience is optional in any way. The Lord makes this clear to Abraham. This is what he moves on to. The Lord does expect something from the people with whom he's committing himself in the covenant. And we see this first in the words to Abraham in verse 9. So this is point two. Abram's rule, which is complete obedience. Look at verse 9. God said to Abraham, 
As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. If you think back to chapter 15, the Lord had made this unilateral covenant, right? Abraham was asleep when God made this covenant. That was it. There was nothing for the recipient Abram to do except believe it. And he did. He believed it. But here in chapter 17, it's a bit different. The Lord specifies that there is a certain way to obey, to demonstrate outwardly that you're believing the covenant. What is it? Or why is this? There seems to be a consistent pattern as you read through kind of the Old Testament biblical narrative when it comes to the way the Lord relates to his people in light of their sin. And that is when when his people's actions demonstrate their struggle to obey, the Lord hands down more and more specific prescriptions for obedience. In other words, when the Lord, when he hands down prescriptions for obedience, it's not that faith isn't sufficient anymore. It is. Abram's already proved that. He's shown that through the way that faith is the way to be righteous. But because of the hardness of heart, especially after particularly obvious failures in the Old Testament, the Lord consistently gives his people specific instructions by which they are to demonstrate their faith in action. I think this is what he does here. The receiving of the covenant is still something done by faith. You must believe it. That's it. But, the Lord says, you must also demonstrate this belief through outward means. And what is this demonstration? It's a strange little thing we call circumcision. Look at verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. All right, so this brings up lots of questions. So I'll just, uh, just a few things here about circumcision before I encourage you to submit any unanswered questions to Mike and Mike. So to circumcise simply means to remove something, in this case, flesh, by cutting around. So it's interesting to note that Abraham doesn't seem surprised or confused by the command, right? Seems to be some kind of practice that's relatively known to him. And whose flesh was to be removed or circumcised? Verse 12 makes it clear that it's every male in the household, by nature or by acquisition, that is servants, in every generation. In other words, now this is now the outward identifying marker of the sons of Abraham. And why? Why this act of obedience? What's the, what's the covenantal purpose here? Well, it'd be an obvious irreversible reminder of the covenant, right? So the obedience of circumcision guaranteed that the covenant was unforgettable, how true that is. It was also a continual reminder of the connection between the covenant and the means of fulfillment, that is, sexual union. The covenant would be fulfilled through trusting God with the seed, that is, the offspring. So by means of circumcision, God's chosen people would outwardly demonstrate their faith and identity as belonging to the Lord, as those whose flesh had been cut away, had been removed by faith. And I think it's here that we begin to see kind of the ongoing, the lasting theological significance of such a sign. If you keep reading in the Old Testament, you'll see that even before we get to the New Testament, even before we get to the end of the Pentateuch, 
we have clear understanding that the physical circumcision of the flesh was not the main point of either the act or the covenant. Rather, the physical outward sign was always pointing to an inner, more lasting reality, namely, circumcision of the heart. Moses himself mentions this in the book of Deuteronomy. Jeremiah the prophet then comes along and picks up on this reality. Ezekiel picks up on this reality. So in circumcision, the Lord's desire is that his people would be marked as his own. That they'd be undeniably set aside as his. But what we see as we keep reading is that this outward sign is actually the picture of his desire for the inward reality. God's desire is that his people would have circumcised hearts. That is, hearts whose old fleshly nature had been cut away. Hearts that are new and set apart for the Lord their God. And this is exactly the way the New Testament picks up on the idea after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The issue now in the New Testament church is not one of outward circumcision or not. That's optional. The issue now is of circumcision of the heart, which is not optional. That is, are you a person whose heart has been cut free from the old nature by the Spirit of God? That's the question. It's interesting. On this basis, Stephen is rebuked by the religious, or he himself rebuked the religious zealots of the day in the very speech which led him to his martyrdom. Acts chapter 7, verse 51, right in the middle of it, Stephen says, looks at them and says, you stiff-necked people. What was their problem? uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. What was the Pharisees' problem? Not that they had refused to be circumcised in the flesh. They were. Their problem was that they, by their unbelief, proved themselves not to be the true circumcision whose hearts had been made new by the Spirit through faith in Christ. And this is why the true people of God in the Old and New Testaments are those who prove their election, their inner circumcision through their faith in God's covenant seed through Abraham. I think this is exactly what Paul is explaining when he's seeking to help people understand that all people, both Jew and Gentile, are under the same obligation and need. That is not outward circumcision, but inner. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. That is not by the law. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. How would Paul identify the, the church? He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him, listen, listen to this, Christian. In him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
In Genesis 17, God requires Abraham that he and his people prove his faith through the sign of circumcision. But that sign from the very beginning was merely a fleshly symbol of the real spiritual thing. The question now for us is not, have you been circumcised in the flesh? It doesn't matter. Do it, don't do it, whatever. The question for you here this morning is, have you been circumcised in heart? Has your old person been cut away? Has the old self, that man or woman of sin and flesh, has it been removed and put aside? Has it been put to death? Another way to ask, do you have a heart that loves and trusts the Lord Jesus? If not, why not make it today? This is what the Lord's committing to. He will give you a new heart. You can do that. You can ask him to take your old heart of stone away and give him, replace it with a new heart that beats and bleeds with faith and affection for the Lord Jesus. If that is you, if you do know Christ, if you do have this new heart, I would just encourage you, live in it. Live is that... Live as someone whose old self has been put to death. Abraham and his offspring, they were were to demonstrate their faith through circumcision. I would just ask, does your life demonstrate your spiritual circumcision? We, the church, are to demonstrate our faith through daily circumcision, so to speak. That is, putting off of the old man or woman and putting on Christ. That's a summary of the application of the gospel of the New Testament. Put off your old self, put on the new. When this passage, the Lord speaks, so we've seen him clarify many things already, the the Lord's role, Abram's role, and he speaks up one more time. And this time he makes clear Sarai's role. Her role, excessive fruitfulness. Excessive fruitfulness. Remember the last time we saw Sarai, she was offering up her servant to Abram to try to kind of coax the the promise of offspring along. So she's aware of the promise of children to Abram. She wants it to happen. But remember her situation at this point, right? She's in her late 80s herself, rather young and spry compared to Abram, but still has some years on her. And she's still barren. She's gone like seven decades expecting children and having none. I mean, it's a legitimate question. Is the promise, is it really supposed to come through her? Well, the Lord speaks and makes it clear this time in technicolor detail. Look there in verse 15. God said to Abram, Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I'll bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I'll bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Got another name change. This time from Sarai to Sarah, which very simply means princess. The Lord is making his program clear. This barren woman is destined to be the mother of nations and kings. Through this princess, the Lord says, I will bring about a royal dynasty. This is the second time 
The technicolor text gives us the mention of kings coming from Abram and Sarah. So verse 6, verse 16. So that now we not only expect a promised seed and a promised son, we expect something more. That is, we expect that son to be royal. We expect him to be kingly. Or to use more Old Testament language, we expect him to be messianic. Their son will come to do some ruling and reigning. He'll rule a multitude of peoples, just as his dad's name suggests. He'll rule royal nations, just as his mother's name suggests. Sarah, the exceptionally barren one, will be the most excessively fruitful mother the world has ever known. Well, at this, Abram, it seems he he just kind of can't contain himself. Look there in verse 17. He hears this, verse 17. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abram hears that and he laughs. This, is, this begins a, a motif of laughter that carries on through the coming chapters. So all throughout the ensuing narrative, people begin laughing when they hear the word of the Lord. And at least in this instance, laughter seems to communicate this, this inner tension that Abraham feels. It kind of it brings together both his full-fledged belief in God's plan and his tendency to want to kind of limit how that plan could come to pass. So it kind of takes us off guard as laughter. But when you think about it, it's kind of the perfect way to convey man's limitations and God's power. The Lord promises something that seems impossible. We kind of laugh, just exhale. Abram laughs. And after he laughs, he recommends that the Lord take the son he's already got by Hagar. Use Ishmael, Lord. That's the son I know I already have. Look there in verse 19, though. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you'll call his name Isaac. I'll establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. No, Abram, God says, no, I'll I'll take care of Ishmael. He goes on to explain that. But Ishmael's not the one. He's not the point. No, your wife, yes, your nearly 90-year-old wife will have a son. And I'll confirm my covenant through a son who does not yet exist. And when he comes, you'll call his name Isaac, which means laughter. And by this name, laughter, the Lord guarantees that Abram, Abraham and we will never forget the absurdity of the promise and providence of God. This is how he's working. So that's the covenant. The Lord is finished speaking, and after he finishes, the Lord departs. We don't know what that looks like or how that happens. We trust that we know what we need to know. Verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. All that's left now is immediate obedience, which is exactly what we get. Verses 23 to 27, they make it clear that that very day... Abraham obeyed the Lord by circumcising himself and every male of his household, just as he was commanded. And with this chapter, and with this, the chapter ends with the beginnings of what the covenant has promised. 
from Genesis 17, we have the beginnings of a new humanity. A people who by faith have marked themselves off as belonging to the one true covenant-making God. The covenant, the God who has promised them the blessing of his eternal presence and his place. From here on out, the Lord is working to bring about one, then many children of the promise. And if you look around, here we are. Listen to Paul's words from Galatians. He says, now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. If you are united to Christ by faith, you too are a child of the promise. And you too have been circumcised in heart. You know, what would be really cool is if the Lord gave us a sign, a really practical way that we could immediately identify ourselves with him and profess our faith through obedience. And praise God, this is exactly what we have in the Lord's Supper. Listen to the words of Jesus quoted by Paul. Says, Paul says, Jesus took the cup after, cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, your God, our God, he's a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That is forever. Even when the world looks bleak and hopeless and hateful and lost, we can trust him. So let's take the first step of trust now as we come to the table together as the covenant people of God. Let's pray. God, how often we've taken for granted being your covenant people that we could be called like Isaac, children of the promise. We have done nothing. We have done nothing to contribute to this, to bring it about. You have done it all through Christ and by your spirit to bring us in union with you through faith. So we praise you for that. We're so grateful to be your children. We pray now that you would give us grace to live out our new identity as a unified, God-glorifying, Christ-imitating, spirit-empowered people of the covenant God. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.